Hi, you're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Impact Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. I'm Pastor Brandon, the church planter and lead pastor. We are a new church in the D.C. area that is centered on the gospel and sent to our neighborhoods, Northern Virginia, and the nations. Please visit our website at www.impactfxbg.church. There, you'll find our current meeting times and locations. Our prayer is that you are encouraged by the message you hear today and fall more in love with Jesus and others. Thanks for listening. I'm so excited to, to be with you today and to, and to bring you God's Word. Uh, if you would, if you have a copy of God's Word, if you'd open up to Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, maybe this is your first Sunday here. We're so excited that you're here. Uh, we can encourage you that uh, there's an app for that. Um, and it's called, uh, the one that we would typically recommend is Version. It has a lot of different versions of the Bible that you can choose from. And so encourage you to, uh, to use that. But uh, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 today, talking about something that, um, that I really found very interesting as I was studying, and when Brandon and I were talking about um, me preaching some, uh, and he gave me this passage, I was like, why did he give me this one? Because uh, this is one of the ones that when you think about the book of Philippians, and you start talking about people's favorite passages in it, this probably isn't one of them, if we're just going to be honest. This probably isn't the one that people say, this is the one that moves me and speaks to me. Because it's, it's Paul's travel itinerary. You can laugh, it's okay. Um, it, it's his chance of telling the plans. And so for the type A people in the room, this is probably really speaks to you because you're like, yes, I want to know the plan. Uh, but th- this isn't the one that really speaks. But guys, there is a wealth here that speaks to us today. And so I hope to, to talk us through some of that this morning. Um, one of the things, uh, as in my short life so far, uh, one of the most interesting jobs that I've ever had uh, was when I did customer service and technical support for a golf GPS company. So I'm going to say that again, and I really want you to hear this. It was a golf GPS company. So they made a little device for golfers that they could plug into their computer and download maps for golf courses. So I want you to just think about our clientele for a minute. Okay, you got it? You got the vision of the traditional golfer? And think about their technical support abilities. Okay, so you, you got a, my 9 to 5, or 7 to 7 every day, was talking to people how to connect these two devices. Um, and what I learned about that job, and what I learned, um, and I think that any of us can learn in any customer-service-oriented job, is how to listen to people and to listen past what they say to what they need. Because when I would get customers on the phone, the only thing that they would say is, I need it to work, or I want it to work. I'm like, that's great, me too. I want it to work for you, because if it works for you, you don't have to call me. Uh, but what I need to do is figure out what you need so that it can work. And having to think and, and listen past those things to do it. For example, there was this one time a man called in and was very frustrated, very irate, because by the time they call customer support, they've already tried to figure it out and can't make it happen, right? And so he, he's been trying to do this for the past 20, 30 minutes. He gets on hold for 20, 30 extra minutes. So immediately, it's, you know, welcome to Sky Golf. This is Wes. How can I help you? And rawr in the ear, right? So you just kind of have to be patient and wait for it. So after about 15 minutes of working with him and talking him through things, I finally said, sir, I just need you to follow the cable, like from your Sky Golf to your computer. Where is it plugged in? It's like it's plugged into the printer. It's like, well, that's not going to work. We're going to have to unplug it from there and turn it in somewhere else. Serving others is often um, a thankless job, Um, and serving others can often be very difficult because we have to think through past what people say to what they need. But what we need to remember is that serving others, especially as we are followers of Christ, is what we're called to do. This This is the mission that Jesus gives us. He says in in Matthew 18, uh, not Matthew 18, excuse me, Matthew, (laughs) that's the verse, um, Matthew 28, 18, that we are to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you've been at Impact more than one Sunday, you know that that's the heartbeat of our church. That's what we long to do, is to make disciples of all nations. One of the clearest ways that we do that is by serving, is by serving others. And so when we're going to read this passage today, we're going to be looking at some examples of how to serve. So uh, if you will, join me in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read uh, the whole passage, verses 19 through 30, then I'm going to come back and we're going to break it down and talk about it, okay? So let's read together. 
uh, Paul writes, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that, I short, that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, this passage provides us concrete examples of what it looks like for people who've given their life to serve God. That's what this does. That's what this passage gives us. Um, because it talks about, and this, what's really great about this is that Paul sticks it here in what would probably be considered a weird place. If you look at some of his other epistles, Paul's plans often happen at the end of the book, right? In Colossians, at the very end, he starts going through his checklist of all the things that he has not said so far. That's kind of how these letters are written. So if Paul is putting it here, then it's here for a reason. And that reason is because Paul is providing concrete examples of what he's talked about in the previous two chapters. He's now telling the Philippians, these things I've been telling you about, let me show you an example of what I'm talking about. Because what did Paul say in chapter 1? He said, it is better that I live for Christ, but to die is gain but that I will choose to live for your benefit, right? That's what he tells the Philippians. And so he, he's given them that thought, that idea, that theological concept that to live is Christ, but to die is gain, and that we should live to serve. And then in chapter 2, he gives this beautiful picture of who Jesus is and how Jesus empties himself of all of his rights. He pours everything out because Jesus was serving us. So, Paul has given us these ideas, and he puts them here as illustrative examples. D.A. Carson says that the Christian character or the Christian life is as much caught as it's taught, which I think is a great way to talk about it. Um, because if we went around the room right now, if you have been following Jesus for any amount of time, there's probably a person or two that you can say, they showed me how to live. They showed me what it looked like to follow Jesus. Now, it may be, um, you may have listened to tons of sermons, you've made them in multiple churches or one church your whole life, you may have listened to a bunch of podcasts, you may have talked to a bunch of different people, but there are probably two, three, one person who you can point to and say, this is a person that showed me what it looks like. For me, um, I, I grew up in, in Olo, Mississippi, which if you can point to that on a map, talk to me after, I'll give you 20 bucks or something, um, because nobody knows where that's at. But I, I grew up in a very small town, and we had a small town with two churches, but we didn't have a zip code. Um, but we, uh, I grew up in a very small town um, in, in, a, in a small church, and uh, it was filled with great people, godly people, and a lot of them showed me what it looked like to go to church. They showed me what it looked like to, to be a Christian at church. But I didn't really understand what it meant like to follow Jesus until I went to college. And uh, my first summer, um, I moved to Northern California. I uh, went to Redway, California, which is about five hours north of San Francisco, so up in the hills and the redwoods. Um, and I stayed with a pastor, and I did a summer missionary. I did that for two summers uh, with a pastor named David. And David was probably one of the first people that actually showed me what it looked like to live a life for Jesus. Because here's a man who um, has an incredible testimony of the Lord, uh, but here's a man who actually took the time to take an 18-year-old from Mississippi who dogged him about his accent the entire summer. Um, that would be me. David was dogging me about my accent the entire summer. Um, but took the time to show me what it looked like to live among people and to follow Jesus doing it. Every morning, we got up at 6 a.m. and drove to the post office because his side job was that he did janitorial work for the post office. He didn't have to do it. It wasn't an income-based job, but it was a service job so that he could build relationships with postal workers. 
with, and got to be invited into their lives. And they knew he was a pastor. So they would say, hey, pastor, I'm, this has happened in my life. Can you pray for me? And he was able to do that over years. And he lived that life of service. We were, were walking around um, the town, and it was a rather small town in California. And so we're walking around, and up walks a homeless man to him, greets him like he's known him forever, and they have a whole 15-minute conversation that I got to witness. And we walk away, and David's con- whole, the only thing that he said to me was, huh, Troy got new teeth, and kept walking. <laughs> like, that was it. <laughs> that was it. And I was like, okay, we're going we're gonna to circle back to this, right? We're going to have this conversation. And he said, I've, I've worked with him for years. Um, he pops in, he pops out. Um, he was a meth addict. He looks like he has new teeth now. He must have come back from Mexico, which is what they do. And so now uh, he's back in town. So he'll probably be here for another two or three days. We'll feed him a couple of times, and then he'll disappear. This is what we do. Um, it was just the knowledge that um, if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to follow Jesus, that means that we live a life of service. And what it also shows is that if we are truly following Jesus and our hearts are changed by the gospel, this is what we do. This is who we become. And so that's why these passages are here. That's why Paul says these things, because he wants us to understand what it looks like to actually follow Jesus. And he wants the Philippians to get that too. All right, let's dive in and let's talk about this. How can we serve Jesus um, if this is going to be all that it's about if this is what our life is about, and how do we see that in these examples? Well, I think the first thing that we see is that we serve Jesus first by recognizing his authority. This is where we start, right? We start by recognizing that Jesus is, has authority. He is sovereign. And we see that in the very first part of chapter 19. What does Paul say? He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. That's kind of odd, Right? Why are we hoping in Jesus to put somebody on a journey? Like, should we be asking about what the weather conditions are? Or, you know, what, what TSA airport is he going to have to go through? Does he need to be mindful of? Or maybe we need to hope in the chariot that's going to carry him through, or the wagon, or the team. Or you know what? Because it's Paul and Timothy, I can hope in the Roman government, because we're Roman citizens, and they should protect us. Uh, Paul doesn't say that. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus. And what we see here is that Paul has been submissive to the Lord in all things. And this is a theme that runs through Philippians. Paul's submission to Jesus in all things. All things are under his feet. All things are under Jesus. Whether, uh, whether Paul uh, is free or whether he remains imprisoned is under the feet of Jesus. It's not under his status as a Roman citizen. It's not up to his Roman governor or his Roman guard. It's up to Jesus. Uh, whether Paul has comfort or discomfort is not up to all of these other circumstances. It's up to Jesus. Whether Paul has sickness or health, life or death is not up to his circumstances. It's up to Jesus. And so Paul's first step was to believe in recognizing and serving Jesus was to believe that all things fell under Jesus' feet. So that was his belief, right? He believed that God and Jesus were over all things. But his practice then was to accept whatever God gave without question. And that's the difference, right? That's the thing. Because if we talked about this, if we were sitting around my dining room table eating soup or something because it's a pretty cold day, and I said, you know, do you believe that Jesus is over all things? You'd probably say, of course, absolutely. God is in control over all things. And then we start continuing that conversation and say, okay, so how does that practically work out in our lives? Because if we say that God is over all things and then we're worried because, you know, this thing, this, this crazy circumstance has popped up, we're worried about that now. Does that show that what we believe is true? Because our belief, our belief is only shown by our action. We're going to come back to that. But I want us to understand that when we recognize the sovereignty of Jesus over our lives, we stop trusting other things. We stop trusting titles we stop trusting salary packages. We stop trusting roles. We stop trusting um, our voting records or political parties. We stop trusting um, even our own families and friend groups. We trust them. We love them. But our ultimate trust is only found in Jesus because everything else will fail. So how does trusting in the authority of Jesus actually look like serving? How do those two things go together? That's a really good question, and I'm really glad you asked. 
Because when we truly submit to the authority of Christ, when we truly submit and recognize that he is over all things, guys, that, that's freedom. That frees us up to serve. Because we're not bound anymore by all of these worries. We're not bound anymore by all of the other circumstances in our life because we recognize that all of those things are governed by Jesus. And when we believe that, then practically we can accept whatever happens. We can say, this is something from the Lord and he will see me through, no matter how hard it is or no matter how easy it is. We recognize it and we're able to move through. Um, This concept of submission to Christ is actually what frees us from anxiety over ourselves. Because if Jesus has authority, that means it's his job to take care of us. And it's a job that he does very well. Very well. It's a conversation that I have with my son quite often. If you've hung around, you've seen Jedediah. Um, and Jedediah looks a lot like me, but acts a lot like his mom. That's, it's just fair. Emmeline looks a lot like his mom, acts a lot like me. It's just a thing. Um, so, but Jedediah very much has this ownership of, uh, of wanting to know the schedule, wanting to know the structure, wanting to know the plan. Every morning when we are walking out the door to the, bu- uh, the bus stop, Dad, what's the plan? Like, it's, it's, it's just ingrained in his very little soul. But the other side of that, though, is that once he knows the plan or once he knows the rules, he then feels like he gets to enact and kind of govern and provide that leadership to others. He's going to be a really great, I don't know, something someday. I'm pushing for like a veterinarian or something. Got to get a retirement plan there. Um, But he, he does that. And I have to remind him quite often that I don't need him to be dad to Emmeline. I don't need him to enforce the rules for her. I'm more than capable. So let me do my job. Okay? You be the brother and annoy her when you're not in front of me. And let me be the one who takes care of her. Because that's the thing, right? When we try to take care of ourselves, we're looking at Jesus and saying, you know what? I don't need you to do your job. I can do it better. I'm going to say that again. When we try to control all of the circumstances in our lives, we look at Jesus and say, I don't need you to do your job. I can do it better. And the fact is, whenever we try to do that, we only end up in one place. And that's in failure, not success. I often feel in my life, that, uh, in the times that I've done that, that Jesus often looks at me, <laughs> kind of the way that I look at my son sometimes, like, you done yet? Are you, are you done? Are you done fighting? Are you ready to move on? Are you ready to keep going? Because the thing is, is that a lot of times we get frustrated because our life doesn't look the way that we thought it should. So maybe the first thing that we have to recognize Jesus' authority over is what our life looks like and how it actually turns out. Because his care for us does not mean we'll not suffer. We've seen that already, right? In the end of uh, of chapter 1, that Paul says that it's been a gift from God, it's been granted to you, that not only should you believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So we know suffering's part of the deal. So why do we get mad about it? Because we think that we're the ones in control. And why did we cause the suffering to happen? instead of recognizing that Jesus, who has ultimate authority, is the only one who can speak over that. Because the thing about it is, is that his care for us doesn't mean we won't suffer. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean we won't go through hard times. But what it does mean is that we never lose his, we never lose his presence. His presence never stops. And it's from that place of submission, it's from that place of humbling ourselves to him, that we become most like him. Because what did he do? He emptied himself, becoming nothing, becoming a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, giving up every ounce of his rights and his rule and his authority, or not, he didn't give up his authority, but giving all of his rights to that authority so that he could serve us. So recognizing his authority is the first place to us becoming a servant like him. Paul doesn't stop there, though. We got like 19 more verses to go. So let's figure out what else Paul is talking about service. He says, we, serve, uh, we also serve Jesus best by our service to others. And this is a fun little comparison, right? Because um, sometimes you can talk to people and they're like, I'm serving Jesus. 
but serving Jesus means doing this thing over here, but it's not actually doing anything good. You're not doing any good. Um, or I'm serving other people, but if I'm not serving Jesus, and I want to serve Jesus. Well, what we see here is that the two are, are, are kind of the same. Uh, look with me in verse 20. He says, Paul talking about Timothy, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. If you have a pen, will you underline those two words, genuinely concerned? We're going to come back to those. Genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So we have a contrast here that Paul is making. My question is, who is he making that contrast between? It's between Timothy and another group of people. And we would be very quick to say, well, that's just other Romans, right? That's just other people in Rome. No, Paul is making comparison between Jesus, uh, not Jesus, between Timothy and the other Roman Christians as part of their church. So read that verse 21 again with that in mind. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. It's kind of a, a harsh statement from Paul about the church in Rome, that the other Christians there were seeking their own interests, not those of Jesus. And how does he show that Timothy was different? By his genuine concern. Timothy had genuine care for the other people, for the Philippians, for others. And Paul equates that genuine care for others as seeking the interests of Jesus Christ. So what we see here is we serve Jesus best by serving others. That is the root in which we serve best, in having that genuine care um, for others. And we see that Timothy proved this, because uh, how does Paul talk about Timothy? He says in verse 22, You know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. So what we see is that um, Timothy and Paul work together to further the gospel in multiple cities, in multiple places. And now they're talking specifically about his genuine care, because Paul saw how Timothy sought both the physical and spiritual good everywhere that they went. This is a proven worth. And, Tim, and Paul's telling the Philippians, I'm going to send Timothy to you later because he does have genuine care, but I need him here right now to finish some work here. But the idea is that they know that Timothy is serving Jesus where he's at because wherever he goes, he has genuine care. The best way to be a friend, the best way for us to serve Jesus um, is by serving others and to care for others as Christ has served and cared for us. So let's, let's talk about that, because my hope, my hope is that, that you have an example from your life where you've received that kind of care. I really hope that you have. My, my suspicion and my, what I know to be true is that that's actually not, it's, it's not very prevalent as it should be to have received that care from others. Um, one of the first times that I ever experienced that care was in 2019. A lot of people say that 2020 was the worst year ever because, you know, COVID. Um, if you talk to Britta and I, we're going to talk to you about 2019 <laughs> uh, because uh, the Lord was doing some mighty things in our life and, and in that process saw fit in his sovereignty to allow our house to flood four times over the course of that year. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, um, but, uh, and I use fun in a very sarcastic way just in case we were clear. I know sarcasm isn't always heard, so it was not fun. Um, but the first time that it flooded, uh, Britter and I actually weren't home. We were, uh, Britter uh, was a sponsor of a club thing, tribe, I wasn't going to say tribe, but tribe, uh, it was a, um, like a fraternity, sorority, it's a thing, I'm moving on. Um, we were sponsoring an event, uh, we were out of town. And so we get a phone call from uh, someone that we were allowing to live in our extra room, um, who said, hey, your, your house is flooding. <laughs> um, and we said, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> uh, because what? Like that wasn't even anywhere on the possibility. We don't live in a flood zone. We don't live next to a body of water. Um, I'm really concerned as to where the water's coming from. Apparently there was a flash flood in our hometown. It rained about four inches in about 30 minutes. And the way that our, our property was set up, there was an easement, lots of details that we can talk about later over coffee. Needless to say, about two inches of water flooded through our home. So we weren't there. And this storm that had caused that was between us and home. So, I mean, do you drive through the storm and risk life, or do you wait for the storm to pass you and then make the way? We chose to wait. And so we drove home early the next morning, left it, you know, before dawn, and got there. And um, if you've ever walked into a natural disaster, 
then you understand. Um, but especially if you've ever walked into a natural disaster where it's your belongings that are on the floor, um, where you walk in and you know things that you didn't think were going to be necessary, like the laundry that just got thrown on the floor as you were packing is now all soaked and wet. Um, books that were stacked up because you're in school are now ruined. Kids' toys, all of it, just on the floor. Um, and we walked in, and we were thinking, okay, so how do we, sal- how we salvage this, right? We're gearing ourselves up, because Britta and I are, are kind of go-getter people, and we're fixers, and we do things. We're like, how can we do this? Stop. How can we do this? Um, and we, I, I, I walked through all the house, and I came back, and Britta's just sitting in her chair, and I sit on the couch, which thankfully wasn't wet, and I said, we're, we're going to have to make a call. We can't do this. Coming to a place of helplessness allowed us to be able to say we need help because we knew that it was not something that we could do. So what do we do? We get on our group me with our small group at church. We, we make a couple of phone calls. And by about an hour and a half later, there was a team of about 25 people that showed up to our house. They said, I can't pull up carpet, but do you have laundry? I I think that almost about 15 different laundry machines had every ounce of clothing or cloth that we had that was going around Clinton that day. Um, They had people that were saying, we can't, you know, I can't maybe do this, but can I, like, can we bring food? Can we do things? And that's what happened. These people showed up, they gave up their afternoon, and they showed up to help us. And they showed us genuine care. They showed care for us. And that care continued. Now, by about the fourth time, everybody was about done, which honestly, so were we. <laughs> but, um, but they showed genuine care, and they, and they sought ways to help us. Because that being, a, being brought to that place of helplessness made us be humble. And it made us be humble enough to ask for help. Which, honestly, if we're being real, is kind of that first step of this whole thing. Because we have to be humble enough to ask Jesus for help first. So we had to humble ourselves to ask for help. And what we did was we allowed other people to show care for us so that they could also be obedient. Because that's the thing, right? We don't want people to show us care. We want to be the ones showing care. Because then that, I'm just going to say it, that puts us in the position of power. That puts us in the position of care, of protection. It takes a lot more to receive than to give in that case. And if we had never done that, we would have robbed other people of the joy of obedience to Christ by serving us. So, if you have never experienced that kind of care, my hope is is that by being here, you will. Because even while we've been here, uh, one year-ish, year and a month, that we've been acting or operating as a church and, and meeting together, we've also started first through community groups. You may have heard that a couple of times, once or twice if you've been here. Um, but we, we operate through community groups. And even in the short time that we've been here, I know that our community groups have shown that type of genuine care. Whether it's through a baby shower or through a wedding shower or through um, helping someone grieve a death or a loss. Whether it's through helping people move or just providing meals from sickness. I think, I think every single community group has done the who has COVID this week and so that we can operate meals for them. You know, we've all done it. But guys, that's the thing, right? When we serve Jesus by serving others, we show them genuine care. And that helps them, that builds them up so that then when they're able, they can show that genuine care to others. And then they can continue serving Jesus. But if we never show genuine care for others that we do see, how can we show genuine care and love for Christ who we can't? I read that somewhere. All right. Um, <laughs> Paul continues, though. Uh, he talks about Timothy, and he uh, says that he hopes to send him, and we'll get him on the road, and I hope to come soon after. He's waiting for after he kind of figures out what's going to happen in Rome. But then Paul gives us a different example um, of a man named Epaphroditus. There's your um, next name for your dog or cat or pet, um, just to really trip your the child if you want, but really trip up the neighbors like Epaphroditus. It just rolls off the tongue. Um, so <laughs> Epaphroditus is a great example of service because what he shows us is that we serve Jesus by emptying ourselves 
and serving in our weakness. That's what Epaphroditus shows us. He shows us that we serve Jesus when we empty ourselves and serve out of weakness. Let's look at what Epaphroditus does. Uh, Paul says, I've thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have, uh, should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Epaphroditus is an excellent example of what it looks like to serve Jesus by serving others and serving in our weakness. First and foremost, we know that Epaphroditus was just a regular dude. Okay? He wasn't an elder. He wasn't a pastor. He was just a regular dude in the church. Um, if we're going to use the church word for it, it's called a layman. There's someone who just serves in the church. They're not on staff. He doesn't have a title. He just serves. But, but Paul calls him worthy of honor because of that service. So how does Epaphroditus show us how to live faithfully? How does he show us how to live um, like Jesus in service to Jesus? Well, look what Paul calls him. He calls him five different things in verse 25. He says, first and foremost, he is my brother. Okay? He's my brother. He's my partner in the gospel. So when we're talking about people who are fellow servants of Christ, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay? Now, maybe you, like me, have complicated relationships with your siblings. That's another thing that we can unpack over coffee if you want. Um, but maybe you have a complicated relationship with a sibling. And sometimes, um, like when you have a moment of need, thinking about calling your physical sibling maybe not be the first phone call. That's me. Okay? When my house flooded, my brother was not my first phone call. He was about two to three days later when all the work was done. So I could just say, hey, this happened. <laughs> and then he's like, why didn't you call me? I could have, it's fine. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> but who did I call? I called my brothers and sisters in Christ because they showed genuine care and were close. So Paul is saying that about Epaphroditus. He's my brother. We work together in the gospel. He calls him brother. He then calls him a fellow worker, my co-worker. Now, what's interesting about this is because if, if you have complicated relationships with siblings, let's not bring up coworkers, am I right? Um, but let's talk about that word, coworker. That means work with, right? Co means work with, worker, work. Okay, one who works. One who works with. Um, but it also shows equality. So Paul is lifting Epaphroditus up and saying, He is my coworker in Christ, my fellow worker. We are doing the same work, we are equal. So he's lifting him up and showing that what he's doing is good work. He calls him a fellow soldier. That's a soldier in the fight for the gospel because Epaphroditus suffered for it. He suffered for his work. And we'll see that in just a second. We'll unpack that a little bit more. But because of that suffering, it was time for his home church to recognize that dude needs to come home like a soldier who's coming home from duty. He's going to need some chance to rest. He's going to need a chance to be home. And so he's a fellow soldier. So that's how Paul views Epaphroditus, right? But also look at how Paul calls Epaphroditus' relationship to the Philippians. He says he was your messenger, meaning that Epaphroditus was sent out from the church in Philippi, right? He was sent out. He was accomplishing a goal. And not only a, um, a, a messenger, he was also a minister, right? That's what it says, a minister to my need. That word minister is also the same word as priest, Okay? Is the same word. But it's not minister in title. It's not priest in title, but in function. Because just like a priest served the people in their act of worship, that's what Paul is saying that Epaphroditus did for the Philippians. He served me, and by serving me was serving Christ, and that was an act of worship for you, from you. Because he was a minister to my need. So from those five things, we see that Epaphroditus uh, was living out his calling and his service faithfully without any type of need to have that written down on paper. Epaphroditus didn't need to be on staff at the church to do that. Epaphroditus didn't need to have a position or a title or anything to do that. He did because that's what God had called him to. And by serving, he was serving Jesus first. What's nice about this is that by Paul sticking it here, he, um, he shows us something that is, is one of my favorite sayings, um, and it's going to be some church words, so solve me, or uh, 
forgive me for a second. But orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. So those are your Thanksgiving words for you to bring up at Thanksgiving this year. So let's talk about what that means. Orthodoxy means right belief, okay? When we have a right belief, that leads to orthopraxy, which is right practice. When we have the right beliefs about Jesus, that leads us to a right life, a right living. And what we see is exactly this, because what has Paul just told us at the beginning of of Philippians chapter 2? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. If we believe that about Jesus, then that means that's how we get to act. And that's what Epaphroditus does. He shows us this, because he was not even concerned about himself. We never see Epaphroditus saying he was really anxious about his health. What is Epaphroditus, oh, what is Epaphroditus anxious about? For he, in verse 26 it says, For he has been longing for you and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Okay, That's like me going to visit Franklin in the hospital, and Franklin said, Dude, why are you here? You don't need to be here. I'm fine. You don't need to be concerned about me. And he's like, and I see you and dying. <laughs> okay? that's, that's the picture here. And if we're really going to dive into it, that word distressed is only used one other time in the entire Bible. And it's used in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus says his soul was distressed. So the level of anxiety and distress and, frankly, going crazy that Epaphroditus was doing was because he knew that the Philippians were worried about him. So even as he is literally on his deathbed, sick and dying, his concern was not about his health, but was about his church, who was getting upset about him. If you need a concrete example of what it looks like to be emptied of yourself in service to others, ladies and gentlemen, that's it. Because I don't even know if right now I would say that if I were in the ICU tomorrow, I would be really concerned because you guys were sad for me. (laughs) Um, I, I can't say that. Maybe because I'd be in a medical coma and probably not concerned about anything. But what I can say is that this is something that is an example for us for how to live in service to Jesus, to be that emptied of ourselves. Um, Rather than being glad that he was the center of attention, Aphrodite, or not Aphrodite, Epaphroditus was literally going crazy. He did not want to be the center of attention because that took the center of attention off the one whom it was due and his name is Jesus. He didn't want the Philippians so concerned about him that they forgot to do the mission that God had given them. So he was distressed, and he was ready to go. But if we read a little bit further, we find out a little bit more about his illness. We don't really know what it was, but we know that he was indeed was ill, in verse 27, near to death. Okay? So if we're going to speculate for a second, um, the journey from Philippi to Rome is not one you do in a day. It takes a little while, okay? Probably a couple of weeks' journey. Possibly Epaphroditus caught a bug somewhere along the way, maybe a flu, something like that. Not something he could go to a local pharmacist to get an antibiotic for because they didn't exist then, just so that we're all clear. Um, but what it does mean is that he then would have to have been probably carried the rest of the way because the dude wasn't going home without finishing the job that he was given. So he pushed through, and he did it. And he gets there, and then he has to get nursed back to health. And Paul says that God had mercy on him to do that. Because what did Epaphroditus do? He risked his life. He gambled. That's what that word means. Risked, it was a gambling term. Okay? He risked his life. He gambled his life, his very self. Not in response to doing the work, but in response to the worthiness of Christ. Because Christ was worthy, which is why he was doing the work. But notice, though, it's not like he was doing anything really grand. Dude was literally going on a road trip to drop off a check. That's all he was doing. <laughs> I'm, he, was, he was traveling to go bring the money the Philippians had raised to give to Paul. He wasn't going to you know, do a crazy mission trip. He wasn't serving the, the very last of the people on the planet He was just dropping off a check. He was going to the bank. I mean, that's all he was doing. But he got so sick, and he got so over, he he almost died by doing that. It was really mundane. But what does that show us? That shows us that the true nature of emptying ourselves and serving others in our weakness 
is not just reserved for the big things. It's reserved for the very small and mundane. It's the waking up and having a migraine and still getting up and making dinner for your kids. Amen. (laughs) It's hearing the phone call of someone else who is having a horrible time and saying, all right, well, we can make this or that or we can do this or that, and you just do it. It's not a question, but it's just picking it up and making it part of life. It's putting ourselves in places that may be uncomfortable or may even be dangerous in the service of others because it's willingness. It's willing faithfulness in the hour before us. It's willing to be obedient to what God has called us to right then, even if it means I get sick, even if it means I'm uncomfortable, even if it means that you have to see parts of me that maybe you don't want to see. For example, my living room on laundry day. Nobody wants to see that. But if my service to you means you get to see it, come on. You know, here's your basket, here's mine, and let's figure this thing out. Okay? Serving in our weakness doesn't have to mean martyrdom. Serving in our weakness doesn't have to mean extreme missionary service. It doesn't have to mean doing these crazy big things. It can, but it doesn't have to mean that. What it does mean, it means serving Christ when we are weak so that his strength is made evident to those around us. Because we pour ourselves out, just like Jesus poured himself out. And if we're talking about anxiety, a lot of times that can be an answer. We pour ourselves out, get the focus off of us, and get our focus on Christ. And by removing ourselves from the picture, we can see that Jesus takes care of us, just like he takes care of others through us. Because the thing is, is that Paul linked Epaphroditus' recovery to God's mercy. Paul, or Epaphroditus, didn't die, and that was a mercy from God. The same is true for us. When we serve, we recognize that we are at the mercy of God, and there's no greater place to be. Okay, Uh, let's finish this up. Paul then gives notice to the Philippians of what they're supposed to do in response to this. So what it tells us is if we serve Jesus by honoring those who serve Jesus faithfully. Okay, so that sounds a little weird, so let's break this down. We serve Jesus by honoring those who serve him faithfully. Look at verse 29. Paul says, So receive him, being Epaphroditus, in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. We see this throughout the scripture, that the life lived in Christ should be lived by honoring others. In another place, Paul says that we should outdo each other in showing honor to each other. Um, It looks like, this honor looks like a deep appreciation for those that are doing the hard work of building up the church. It doesn't mean that we seek honor for ourselves, but that we give honor freely. So this is the idea of giving honor. What is honor? What does that look like? That looks just like showing appreciation, (laughs) saying thank you, writing a card, making a meal. You know, it could be very easy. (laughs) It doesn't have to be difficult. But what it does show us is that this is our way that we serve Jesus by honoring those who do serve as well. Epaphroditus was so committed to the work of the gospel for completing the work that Christ had set before him uh, that he was willing to die. And by willing to die, he gave up everything that he could have. And he was willing to lay down his life so that the gospel could continue. It wasn't for his own honor, but that's what shows that he was worthy of it. He was willing to lay it all down so that the gospel could be fulfilled. And is that something that we can say the same? for ourselves. Because I think that we uh, maybe don't often regard others as worthy of love in our day-to-day life. They could be co-workers. Um, we don't regard our, our fellow Christians, our, our fellow workers in the gospel as co-workers, fellow soldiers, co-heirs, worthy of our honor. Um, in a lot of churches, we can sometimes look at each other with suspicion, frustration, or sometimes even contempt. We can be envious of gifts that God has given, and we can be afraid to praise others because of how it threatens ourselves. Self-concern 
dulls the heart to the needs of the church and others. When we are so consumed with concern for ourselves, then we can't see, <laughs> we can't see how to love and live as Jesus lives. Because what that means is that we're seeking to fulfill the anxieties in our heart and our own power and strength rather than Jesus. We're trying to make ourselves secure rather than resting on his security. So people who live sacrificial lives for the gospel are worthy of our honor and our emulation. They're worthy of us looking to them and pattering our lives after them. Because we honor them not by lifting them up and making a spectacle. There's only one person who is lifted up, and his name is Jesus. It's not me. It's not anybody else. His name is Jesus. But how do we honor them? We honor those who serve Christ best by showing them the same love and the same presence that they show us. We reciprocate. So, we've talked a lot about service, and Paul gives us really good examples. The first thing that we need to know about these examples is that they show us that serving Jesus comes from a heart that's been changed by the gospel. If we turned back time a little bit, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus all had changed hearts. They all are very different men, very different personalities that we see in Scripture, very diverse. But what we see is that they have unity in service. And that the gospel is changing their hearts so that they better resemble Christ. This passage also shows a better representation of what it means to follow Jesus. Because we can be overwhelmed and even be dissuaded about following Jesus by how we look at how the name of Christian or the name of Christ is used in places outside of the church. When you turn on the news or you turn on and listen to someone who is a political figure or you turn on anything in mainstream media, you are inundated with the message of what it means to be a Christian. And if I can be so bold, 98% of them are wrong and false. But how are we showing them that it's different? We show them how it's different by the way that we live our lives in relation to how we see it here, emptied of ourselves in service to others so that Christ can be lifted high. Because faithful Christian living doesn't have to look extraordinary, but it does have to look like service because that's how Jesus did for us. So how do we respond to this passage? You know, like I said, this, this isn't anybody's really favorite passage in Philippians, but there's a lot of good wealth here to teach us. So how do we respond to that? I think the first thing is we need to ask ourselves, um, are we actively or passively consuming our lives together in Christ? I'm going to ask that again. Are you actively or are you passively consuming your life together in Christ? Active lives together in Christ look like living in community, growing in our relationship with each other, and serving through genuine care. That's what an active participation looks like. Passive, consume, passive consuming of that just looks like showing up and receiving, but never giving out. I think from this passage, we may need to be called to active participation. Second, we need to ask ourselves about our motivations. Why are we serving? Are we serving others as a way to serve Jesus, or are we serving others as a way to serve ourselves? Because only one of those is honored here, and it's not serving ourselves. If I can give a, a brief example of that, the best example that I know is marriage. Britta and I will be married 14 years in May. Hallelujah. Um, and over that time, we have learned a lot of lessons because while we love our parents very much, our parents were not very good examples of what it looks like to live as a married couple for very long. We both come from divorce and broken families. And as we heard in our premarital counseling, all of the statistics are against us, so thank you for that. Um, but what it does tell us is that we had to learn what it meant to live life in service to each other. So what does that look like? That looks like when we're together, I am not concerned about me. I'm concerned about her. And she's not concerned about her. She's concerned about me. That's not always a 50-50, by the way. Uh, life circumstances can make the, that, that balance shift. Sometimes it's even 90-10. But that's the joy of that type of relationship that you do it not because you need anything back from them, but because you want to see it fulfilled in them. You want to see that growth, and you want to see those needs be met, and you want to love them well. Now, I'm not saying that our service to Christ needs to look like being married to everyone. That's not the point of that conversation. 
But what it does tell us is that is our motivation in serving others about showing them the love that Christ has shown you? Or is it about seeing your needs be met in them? And finally, um, we need to ask ourselves, what do we need to do to actually live like Jesus, emptied of ourself? I'm going to invite the, the worship team back up. Um, because we need to think about what are the actions, what are the actual things that you need to do to emulate this life? Because if you leave here today, and you just walk in your car, and you say, man, that was a great sermon from Wes, or man, I need to text Wes because he's got some work to do. Either way, I'm fine. Um, but if you do that, guys, you missed it. You missed the whole point. Because this passage and these examples call us to action ourselves. If we only hear and we never do, we miss the whole thing. So what are some actions that you can do that maybe needs to look like uh, you living this life of service for Christ? Maybe that looks like you becoming involved in community so that you can receive and give genuine care. So if that's you, let me be the first to invite you to become a part of one of our community groups. Stop at our next steps table. Talk to somebody. Figure out what that looks like for you because we want to show genuine care for you and receive genuine care back. Maybe it looks like you need to stop passively consuming and start actively participating in the service aspect of your faith. So maybe that looks like you need to join a serve team or just start faithfully serving as a way of serving Jesus, getting off the benches and onto the field, if we're going to use a football or sports analogy. I tried. Um, but maybe even more so, it just looks like taking some time to repent. Repent of living for ourself rather than living as Jesus did, emptied of his rights and poured out for our good. Maybe that's our first step. Because before we can go any further, we need to make sure that we have actually submitted to the authority of Jesus. So maybe that looks like humbling ourselves, repenting of our sin, and accepting that he's the only one who can make it right. I can't make it right. Brandon can't make it right. None of us can. Only Jesus can. So we're going to enter into a time of response. And I'm going to pray for us first, and then I'll tell you what we're going to do. But I want you to wrestle with those questions. What do you need to do to respond to this teaching today? Let's pray. Hi, Pastor Brandon here. Thanks again for listening to our Impact Church Sermon Podcast. If God has spoken to you today or you have a prayer request you'd like to share, please email us at hello at impactfxbg.church. If you're local to the Fredericksburg area, we would love to see you for worship in person. But if not, please let us know if we can help you find a gospel-centered church right where you're at. Feel free to connect with us on Facebook or Instagram and on our website, www.impactfxbg.church. Until next time, keep living the dream.